This program is brought to you by PLI, the Practicing Law Institute. To learn more about this podcast, visit pli.edu slash pro bono podcast. So in episode 14, we met three of the lawyers who worked on the landmark litigation Yazzie and Martinez versus New Mexico, which was a case that is transforming New Mexico's education system. Martina Estrada, Ernest Herrera, and Preston Sanchez told some great stories about working on that case. But they also have really interesting and very different paths to the legal profession. We enjoyed hearing about it, and we thought you would too. My name is Preston Sanchez. I'm from New Mexico, born and raised here in Albuquerque. And I work at the ACLU of New Mexico as the Indigenous Justice Attorney. So Preston, um, what drew you to law school in the first place? You know, I, I think just for me growing up in New Mexico, being a native person, but also being born and raised in Albuquerque, New Mexico, which is, uh, uh, it's a tough city. They call it the Duke City. We call it Burke. We call it a, a number of things. And, you know, it has a, not, a lot of connotations because of how tough it is. It's it's a poor town, and um, but it's also got unique features and great things about it. Strong culture, strong people. And so resilience is, you know, a word that comes to mind when I think about Albuquerque. And I, you know, didn't necessarily do well in high school. I went to college, fell in love with, you know, the material that I was uh, presented with, the subjects of psychology and philosophy and just really getting into criminology and sociology. Uh, Needed an additional challenge to kind of take it to the next level, which I thought law school would be a good fit. Keep in mind, though, you know, I was also getting in a lot of trouble as a youngster. I experienced the juvenile justice system, you know, in high school and was on probation for my whole senior year of high school and continued to find myself, you know, on the other side of the law. I fought the law and the law won. I'll say that, (laughs) you know, and and so having that experience with the criminal justice system, I thought, you know, there were experiences that I had with, you know, police, there were experiences that I had with uh, judges and attorneys and I was pretty fascinated by what, you know, attorneys could do in a situation where a young person is being implicated for a crime and, you know, how the justice system could work in favor of the child or it could work, you know, against the child. And so um, I had some serious ideas about what I wanted to do when I got to law school. Everything kind of changed through my experience with law school because, you know, I didn't really want to practice criminal defense after I graduated But at the same time, during law school, I had decided to do something that I thought, you know, would help help me help the community that I'm from. I started a law school program called the Marshall Brennan Constitutional Literacy Project. It's a essentially is a a program that works with high school students. We would recruit law students to go to high schools and spend an entire semester there teaching students about what their rights are, but also teaching them about constitutional law, how to argue. And it involves the competition and all kinds of other things. But that program is still going on now. And so that sort of really gave me an interest to be a teacher or at least get involved in, in educating students and, and also, you know, help tie me or ground me to the law, the constitutional law that I was more fascinated with. And, you know, when I graduated law school, I decided, you know, I think I want to go teaching. I don't know that I want to practice, Mm. Uh, but I ended up, you know, taking some time off. I didn't take the bar exam right away, found a job with the Center on Law and Poverty, you know, found this excellent opportunity to start researching the issues impacting students in New Mexico and and researching the education system. And that sort of tied in with, you know, my, my sort of appreciation for being an educator 
And at the same time, it also got me in, back into wanting to practice. And so we filed this case. And, you know, from a 10,000 foot view, I'm looking at the entire education system from a legal standpoint. And, you know, it sort of blended both worlds perfectly for me, like as an educator, wanting to be an educator, working with students, but also getting back into the law, which is where I started uh, in terms of my law school career. So, you know, for me personally, this this was my my first lawsuit, my first case as an attorney. Uh, oh, wow. This, yeah, this was my first <laughs> trial. This was my first experience taking a deposition. It was the first time I ever did a direct examination of an expert witness. You know, the first time I ever cross-examined an expert from the defendant side. First time I ever took any sort of testimony or directed the testimony of any of our witnesses. And so I was anxious. I was nervous, you know, that that I was going to let us down or it was going to do something that wasn't, you know, within the confines of what we're trying to accomplish. And so, you know, I had a lot of anxiety about what I was doing, <laughs> but at the same time, you know, trying to also look like I know what I'm doing. Can I just give a footnote real quick? Ernest sure. and I went to law school together. We graduated. We started. I, thought I heard that. Yeah. We were good friends too. I mean, we still are, but like we were, you know, we hung out a lot and we, you know, we had a lot of good times, but we, we experienced the struggles and challenges of law school together. So, you know, it was, it was quite a blessing to, to know that Ernest and I were on this case together. Oh, that's fantastic. You know, this case did change my life. You know, it really helped me focus on what I want to do and what I think is important. And now I'm, you know, I'm working as ACLU's Indigenous Justice Attorney and, you know, I look at everything from an indigenous lens and try to address these issues uh, impacting tribal communities in New Mexico. And so if it's access to water, for example, or, you know, we're suing state police on behalf of uh, a person who is discriminated against or you know, there's a number of issues. And this Yazi Martinez case falls right in within the scope of what I'm doing. So I'm fortunate to have have the case as, you know, part of my experience and, and, and fortunate to still be working on this case, but it's also expanded my understanding of, of issues impacting tribal communities. It's really created opportunities for me to be at the forefront of those issues. And so, um, you know, extremely thankful to work with the Center on Law and Poverty and extremely thankful to work with the Martinez side of, of this litigation because, you know, both sides brought something to the table and, you know, the outcome is this, you know, when, when two community organizations work the way together the way we did, you know, this is this is what's possible. One of my favorite parts about this story is that Preston and Ernest were friends in law school at University of New Mexico's publicly funded law school, no less. And they later ended up working together because their parallel education adequacy cases were consolidated. Ernest told us more about what are the things that got him to that law school in the first place. Hi, my name is Ernest Herrera, and I am an attorney at the Mexican-American Legal Defense and Educational Fund. I'm based in Los Angeles, but I used to be in our San Antonio, Texas office, which covers a large region, the 5th and 10th circuits, including, of course, New Mexico. All right. So, Ernest, tell me about what drew you to go to law school. I was in college at Columbia in New York when I got involved with activism around immigrants' rights, specifically uh, reform for immigration. I am like a third or fourth generation Mexican-American myself from San Antonio, but I think that fight really spoke to me. I saw, you know, my own family in, in, that, in that struggle. So there was some activism around there and there was a lawyer who spoke to us about work and she herself was Vietnamese American. 
and spoke to a group of us about some representation she had done pro bono of a young man who was detained right after 9-11. And so I was in college, you know, a few years after 9-11, like 2006. And she had gotten this this young man who was Pakistani-American out of detention because he was kind of what we would consider today a dreamer in that he was he had been born in Pakistan, but mostly raised in Queens and uh, was detained because right after 9-11, something people don't know about, so a lot of people don't know about is that a lot of people were detained kind of en masse if you were from a Muslim-majority country, if you didn't report to INS, INS at the time, uh, immigration. Uh, so anyway, that, that story was really compelling to me. So that's kind of one of the things that drove me to law school And I also had been paying attention when I was in college to politics back home in in Texas. And there was a a district called Congressional District 23 in Texas that basically extends from San Antonio, West San Antonio, uh, so only a portion of it, down to the, the border, and then all the way to almost El Paso. El Paso has its own district. And that district is kind of fought over between the Democrats and Republicans uh, over the years, probably the last decade and a half, um, because it is has been a swing district. And it's also very Latino. And uh, so I was I grew up partially in living in that district. And late, years later, so I, I go to law school, I specifically went into law school wanting to work on either immigration law, or something having to do with civil rights. I go to uh, the Univers- University of New Mexico in Albuquerque, because it was the best opportunity presented to me. It was a great school I got into applying. I applied to a few, but they also offered a scholarship. And I had been to New Mexico as a kid, just like as a family trip. And I I knew it was a beautiful place, but I didn't know anyone there. (laughs) really. (laughs) So I moved there, uh, went to law school, and while in law school, tried out different things. When I was at UNM Law mm-hmm. School in Albuquerque, the emphasis there really was on public service, whether that be in government or in public interest. Uh, there is a lot of focus on, especially teaching students about what, you know, it's called Indian law, but it's basically law dealing with Native American communities, a lot of issues on water law, but it, there is a lot of emphasis on experience and, and clinic learning. But on the other hand, it is a smaller state law school. There is not there are not the resources like there would be at, say, an Ivy League law school for doing public interest summer mm-hmm. internships. Uh, so while they could support some stuff where you're in school and doing an internship on, you know, on your days when you're not in class, the summer stuff, you're kind of on your own. Ooh. But there was a group that I was involved in uh, called uh, APL, Association of Public Interest Law. And we just did different fundraisers, all kinds of fundraisers to try to raise money so that we could give our fellow peers, our students, fellow students, like a thousand or fifteen hundred bucks for the summer while they go wherever in New Mexico or elsewhere to work on legal aid or different nonprofits. I interned at Legal Aid in San Antonio. It's called Texas Rio Grande Legal Aid, Mm -hmm. TRALA. I interned at uh, the public defender's office there in Albuquerque. So I tried out different things. And after law school, I worked as a prosecutor for a bit in in Western New Mexico uh, grants in rural New Mexico. And I was there before I had also applied to MALDEF. And MALDEF, I got hired by MALDEF later on 
but it was a job back in San Antonio and where I was from, my hometown. And I went in there thinking, you know, I'm going to get to work on immigrants' rights stuff. And I go and I did get to work on that a little bit, but I actually got piped into the voting rights and education docket for MALDEF, which has been really rewarding to me. Ernest and Preston are making careers in nonprofit civil rights law. Martine Estrada is equally committed to using the law to improve people's lives, though he's made his mark in the U.S. Attorney's Office and now in private practice. Hi, everyone. My name is Martine Estrada. I'm a partner at the law firm of Munger, Tolls & Olson in Los Angeles, and I live in Los Angeles, California. So, Martine, could you tell us a little bit about your, um, your law practice? Sure. Uh, my law practice focuses on trials and complex litigation. I was formerly an assistant United States attorney for uh, about seven and a half years. So I do a fair amount of work in the area of investigations as well and um, dealing with uh, major companies involved in business disputes as well as investigations. And when it comes to trial, I'll come in uh, when the case is you know, a few weeks away from trial and get ready for trial and, and take it through to the end. Oh, wow. Coming in to the case like two weeks before trial as a, you know, as a legal aid lawyer who was usually doing it from the day the client walked in the door until the day you tried it, <laughs> um, finished the appeal. What's that like walking in shortly before a case is ready for trial and getting to know it and getting prepared? Sure. And I do both. Uh, I love it when I get in from the beginning. That's that's ideal, as you mentioned. Uh, a big part of our practice is getting in when uh, the case is about to go to trial and um, the seriousness of the situation is, has come upon the client and upon the opposing side. It's not easy, but it's fun in the sense that there's an adrenaline rush. You're learning new facts. You're meeting new people. You're uh, preparing new witnesses. So it's fun in that sense and exciting. And it's also uh, compatible, I think, with what I did as a prosecutor in the sense that many times you don't have that much time to prepare a case as a prosecutor if you're juggling a bunch of cases. So in that sense, it's uh, nostalgic for me. That's actually a really good point about the realities of being a prosecutor. So I know you do a lot of pro bono work. Can you uh, tell us about your pro bono work? Sure. I've, I've done pro bono work since law school, really. It's been an important part of what I do and what I focus on. I come from a family of immigrants. All of my siblings and my parents were born in Guatemala and came here in the 1970s, essentially fled Guatemala. And so immigration law, asylum law is very important to me. And I've done that through clinical work in law school. I've done that through Ninth Circuit representations uh, in private practice. I've done that work before the immigration courts. I've done that work in petitions for asylum relief. So that's an important area of what I've done and what I continue to do. I also am deeply involved with the Legal Aid Foundation. It's funny, uh, you mentioned your experience with legal aid. That's how I first really learned about the law. When I was in college, I got a job as essentially an interpreter, a Spanish language interpreter at the Legal Aid Society of Orange County. Mm -hmm. and learned what it was like to be a lawyer and learned what it was like to be a legal aid lawyer by um, doing essentially translating services there. 
and it really got me interested in the law and is one of the main reasons I ended up going to law school. So I've been lucky enough as a um, private practitioner at Munger Tolls to be on the board of the Legal Aid Foundation of Los Angeles. I do a lot of work with them, various different types of civil cases. Uh, we also started this year a remote domestic violence clinic. That's something important to me as a former prosecutor. I believe strongly in trying to help uh, victims of all sorts of crimes, but including victims of violence. So that's important to me doing that type of work. And I would also say it's it's part of our duty doing this pro bono work. Certainly at my firm, Munger Tools and Olson, we believe pro bono is critical. And it's certainly critical to each individual. I think you get a lot of satisfaction out of doing these types of cases. But it's also something that's critical to the profession, something that we just need to do as lawyers, giving back to our communities, giving back to those in need. There's just so many different ways that lawyers can make an impact in their communities and so many different motivations for each of us to choose this profession. That's a major reason why we bring you these pro bono stories, to remind all of us that there's no single right way to contribute, but we do all need to find our own best way to make a difference. Thanks for listening to Pursuing Justice, The Pro Bono Files, a podcast from PLI, the Practicing Law Institute. This production is dedicated to the pro bono and public interest lawyers working to improve access to justice. A special thanks goes to our producer, Daniel Pinitz, as well as our host, Alicia Aiken. Please note that the views and opinions expressed during this podcast represent those of the individuals being interviewed and not necessarily those of PLI. PLI is a nonprofit learning organization dedicated to keeping attorneys and other professionals at the forefront of knowledge and expertise. For more information about PLI's wide-ranging curriculum of pro bono programs, visit pli.edu slash pro bono.